All right. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Hello, everyone. We made it. We have made it to the end of Ephesians. This is the um, final sermon of the six-part series in the six chapters of Ephesians, and it has been an honor and a privilege to kind of work through this with you guys. Um, we kind of titled this series Identity, seeing what our identity is, what Christ has said our identity to be, and I definitely think that, that over these past six weeks, um, my identity has hopefully become more like Christ because of this series and because of this book. And I, and I hope that this churches and you as individuals, your identity has also um, kind of gone that way a little bit as well. So before we jump in today, let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this time together. We can just jump and dive into your word, Lord. Um, Lord, your word is alive and active, and let us just cut at our hearts and, and, and soften them and change them to be more and more like you, Lord. Lord, if there's anything I say this morning that does not directly parallel your word, let that be forever forgotten, and let only your eternal truths be remembered. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have made us in your image and that you have adopted us as sons and daughters. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. In the name I pray, amen. All right, um, so let's do a little bit of review. Let's do a little bit of review uh, in case... You maybe missed a couple, or this is your first time being here in this, in this series. That's all right. We're going to do a little review. So chapters 1 through 5 of Ephesians um, gave us a lot. Chapters 1 through 3 gave us all the like, theological stuff, all the, all the really you know, head stuff, all the really heart stuff. Um, that's stuff where it talks about in chapter 1 that we are adopted children of God, that he has predestined us to be adopted. The Holy Spirit's been our down payment. Chapter 2, man, Ephesians chapter 2, one of the best chapters in all of Scripture. So that might be controversial, but it is. Um, that's, that's where we learn about salvation, what that process actually looks like, and how that leads to unity. And then chapter 3 is this big talk about how unity is, is worth dying for. In fact, unity is, is a part of the mission of the church. And then Paul says, okay, so here's, all your, here's your base. Here's what you're working out of. Now, how does that work out in real life? So how does the stuff in the heart and how does the stuff in the head work out in the hands, the hands and the feet? And so in chapter 4, you're going to see, okay, well, this is how you should talk to one another. And this is how you should, you know, handle your emotions. Chapter 5, to get a little bit more narrowed down, this is what your relationship should be like. Husbands, wives, this is what your relationship should be like. And in chapter 6 today, we're going to get to um, those last couple relationships. Now, chapter 6 is a stacked chapter. And if you have not read chapter 6, I recommend um, this week sometimes read chapter 6. Just read the whole book of Ephesians, just in one sitting. It's all right. You can do it. It's like 20, 30 minutes. Um, just sit down, just read the whole, the whole book, um, you know, because that's how it was written. Um, and that'll be a nice little way to kind of tie it off too. But chapter six is stacked. And so I'm only going to be able to take down uh, a little bit of it this morning. We are going to be in verses one through nine. Let me go ahead and read those for you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And bond servants, you might have slaves in your translations, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bondservant or he is free. And masters, 
Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack, and we're going to try to move quickly um, through it. So there are four types of people mentioned with this, um, where we have children, fathers, which just means parents, we have bondservants, and which, you know, other word for that is slaves, and we have masters. And these are going to give us these, these implications of a spirit-filled life. Because in one through three, it shows you how do you get the spirit. So if you don't have the spirit, if you're not a believer, this message really is not for you. Um, neither was last week's, neither was the week before, really, um, if we're following the argument. Now, if you're not a believer, don't just say, oh, well, this church is the worst. They're super exclusive. No, just re- pull out Ephesians chapter 2, read that over and over and over again. You can just tune me out, um, and then we can just talk about that afterwards. Um, but if you're a believer, if you say you have a spirit-filled life, this is how you should live it out. That's kind of Paul's, Paul's argument. Your relationship with others, and I've said this quote a bunch before, and I've said it in preaching, I'll keep saying it again because it's something that lays heavy on my heart. Your relationship with others should reflect your relationship with Christ. And your relationship with Christ should reflect your relationship with others. And that's what Paul is going to show. If you say you have a spirit-filled life, you should act differently. You should be in the world, but not of the world. You know, kind of get that idea? And that's what we're going to be working through. The first type of person is children. It says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Um, that might go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Um, there's a great Ralph Waldo Emerson quote about um, children. He says this, a child is just a dimply, curly lunatic. Um, that, they, that a child is just a dimpled, curly lunatic. And that's pretty true. I mean, uh, I don't have children. But I am a teacher, and my wife's a teacher, and so we're around children a bunch, and I'm also a youth pastor, and they're the ones back there not listening to me right now, and I know that they are, that they are lunatics. Um, you know, that, that's kind of that's how children are. Um, and I know that Paul never had kids, and I know that for sure, one, because he says it, but two, right here, because he says the first word after children is he says obey. Like, I know that Paul never had kids, because he says children, obey. Um, that's hard. That, that's really hard for a child. Um, but that's what sets them apart. If you have a child that, that claims to, to have you know, a relationship with Christ, a spirit-filled life, then they should be able to obey. That's what sets them apart. That's what makes them different. If they can't obey an earthly parent, then how are that, that they can see, that they can feel real-life punishments for, that they can have this relationship with, physically, like that they know physically, then how are they ever going to be able to say that they have this obedience to a heavenly father? to a heavenly parent. And I think, you know, this, this is someone who doesn't have kids, so you can throw this away, but I think we should have a little bit of higher standards for our children if they say they're believers. If they are at that age where they have come to um, a relationship with Christ, and that's awesome. But if they are spirit-filled, they should be living spirit-filled lives. But luckily, this command is universal. Why? Because you're all children. All of us, we're all children. We might not all be parents, but we're all children. So this is a universal command. And we should be able to show our obedience to the Heavenly Father by our obedience to our earthly fathers and mothers. That is what Paul is saying. And it's not to make our parents happy. He doesn't say, hey, be good to your parents so your parents are happy. That's very shallow. That's a very like you know emotional pep talk kind of stuff. It's a little bit deeper than that. It's obey your parents 
not to make them happy, but because this is going to reflect your obedience to your heavenly parent. Um, and why? Well, I think if you look back to Ephesians 1, you got Ephesians 1, uh, 5 through 6, and it talks about the adoption um, of children, that, that we are adopted children of the Lord. And the reason why, that, why God chose to do that is for the praise of his glory. It brings God glory to have children that can obey their parents because they're living a spirit-filled life. And for you as adults, if your parents are still alive, that is awesome. Um, it brings God glory to obey your parents, whether they deserve to be obeyed or not, because that shows that you have, that reflects the obedience you have to the Father. A child set apart, a child that's different than the world, is a child that honors and obeys. That's the only two commandments it's given. As a child, our, our goal is to honor and obey. Now, this is kind of where, this is how the sermon started. You guys are like, man, these are, this is kind of uncomfortable because it feels like a lot of this, like, do this, don't do this. Um, and that's what Paul is because as a believer, we have different standards. We have different expectations because we're representing the Lord. The next is for fathers. Verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's do a little context right here. Let's dig into that. Do not provoke. Uh, I think for some it says do not exasperate. Um, the context for fathers in the ancient Roman world were that they were these domineering, uh, authoritative um, dictators and that they kind of controlled their house that way. The child was not allowed to, you know, uh, speak out of turn or to act out of turn and everything just came down to the father and his iron fist. Um, this also... a made the father not very vulnerable at all. This didn't necessarily create a very loving uh, relationship in the home. And it also led to the father usually, you know, talking down to their children a lot, talking down, um, being very aggressive, uh, demeaning. And so what Paul was going to say here is, hey, you know what makes you different than every other father in the Roman Empire? If you're a believer, you're not like that. You don't provoke. However, however, it is still your responsibility to discipline and instruct. And he says that. He says, you don't provoke, don't provoke, but still discipline and instruct. We talked about this before, truth and love. As a parent, we got we to gotta truth and love. Um, we got to be treating our kids, you know, we, we got to be honest with them. Hey, this is the standards for, for um, this family, uh, for being my child. But also, I love you even when you don't meet these standards. Truth and love together. Because I think they're tempted to say, okay, well, we're not going to provoke our child, which means we can't discipline our child, we can't instruct our child, we just kind of got to roll over and fold anytime our you know, child acts up. No. Paul says, no, 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 no. You still need to discipline and instruct. This is your duty as a parent. Um, that's how you're different. And this is a very uh, touchy touchy spot for me personally um, when reading this. Um, I did not grow up um, with a father in, in the home. I grew up in a, in a single parent um, home um, with just my mom. And so when I read this and I see where it's talking about like, you know, fathers don't provoke your children, bring them up with, with discipline and instruction and all that good stuff. Um, the father has to be there. And I think the number one uh, attack on the modern day family um, in America, on the Christian family in America, by the enemy and by our sin natures. Um, you know, you could say, well, it's gender issues, it's sexuality issues, it's, the, it's education issues, it's all this. I think the number one attack is fathers who are choosing to have babies and not choosing to be fathers. Um, I think that, that is our number one attack. And so for the father to be able to do this, 
for the Father to be able to not provoke and to instruct and to train up, they have to be there. And they, but it's not just being there. I mean, I know a lot of fathers, I know a lot of people that grew up with fathers where the father was there, but they were not intentional. The father was there in the home and they thought that was enough. That's not enough as a parent. It's not enough just to be there. It's to be intentional, to intentionally train, instruct in the Lord. And we have to have those standards to reflect our spirit-filled life because that is our heavenly father's relationship to us. He's not just there. He's not just watching us from the sky. He is actively working in our lives. If we believe that about the father, then when we are parents, we must believe that about our relationships to our children as well, right? Now, what if you have bad parents? Do you have to, as a child, obey your parents? Yeah. Because your external circumstances do not change your spiritual circumstances with the Lord. You're, and that is, that's the whole point of what Paul's writing about. Your external circumstances do not change your spiritual circumstances with the Lord. And if you do have poor parents, um, like many of us do, that's okay because we have a relationship with the Heavenly Father, with a Father who is perfect, with a Father who is present, and with a Father who is active. He does not say only obey your parent if they, don't, if, if, if they do not provoke you. He doesn't say to the kids, okay, kids, obey your parent. But if they don't instruct you and if they do provoke you, you don't obey. He doesn't say that. He says, obey your parent, period. Because that is going to show that you know your obedience is not based on the circumstances of your life. Your obedience is based on the circumstances of your salvation. And we... we mess around with this whole do-don't theology when preachers and teachers start teaching from Ephesians 4 through 6 without ever talking about the basis of 1 through 3, where you say, okay, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, and then people in the outside world think, oh, well, Christianity is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Well, no, it's a relationship with the Savior, and now I'm going to live my life this way because of this relationship, to reflect this relationship, because everything I'm doing is for the praise of his glory. That is our mission as a church. Now the third, and I knew we were going to spend a little bit of time on this, so I'm going to stop here for a second. The third is bond servants. And so let's read uh, five through eight one more time. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would with Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants to Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Now, as a teacher, as a preacher, I'm very tempted, and I've heard pastors and preachers do this before, and I understand why. I'm very tempted to just say, oh, well, the modern-day context of that is employees, employers, you know, and just kind of skip over that whole, like, slave-master stuff and just say, oh, well, you can just cross those words out and put employees, employers. Well, you guys are too smart for that. You are, because you know that in Greek, there were words for employees, employers, and if that's what he was talking about, that's what he would have put but he puts bondservants and masters. Now, I think there are some modern-day applications, but let's work through that. Here are two points of context. Our view of the word slaves is heavily influenced by our history, right? When, we, when the word slavery or when the word slaves come up, we immediately think back to uh, the American history 
of, of slavery and, and how horrible um, and what an atrocity that was. And that's kind of how we see that. And so we say, oh, what the Bible's talking about slaves, then that's the kind of slavery it's talking about, and the Bible condones slavery, and so the Bible's wrong. You know, I, I've seen a lot of people jump to that conclusion. But let's talk about what slavery really meant in Rome. Because in Rome, over one-third of the population were considered slaves. In fact, about 35% of all the population of Rome were considered slaves. We're talking about millions of people. Millions. And not all these slaves were treated the same way we think about slaves being treated. Now, some were. Some were the, they were captured. Um, usually that was, those were the ones that were treated poorly. But it wasn't necessarily because of race. Most slaves were slaves because of their debts. And let's make a quick note about the Bible not condemning slavery. Um, Paul's mission was not to abolish slavery. Sorry. Because it would have taken attention off the gospel. Another note of context. The emperor at this time, Nero, that guy doesn't really love Christians. He kills a lot of them, like Paul and Peter. He kills those guys. Um, If Paul's mission, if Paul decided, okay, I'm just going to write all my books about abolishing slavery, he probably would have made very little social impact and not much gospel impact at all. And there was a lot of gospel impact made, but I think that's because he did not take the social issue as the main issue. Because although the social issue was great, it is not the greatest issue. There's a heart issue. There's a gospel issue. In fact, if Paul and the other disciples and apostles took on this social issue of um, abolish slavery um, in Rome, the church probably would have been wiped out almost immediately. Because the Romans were okay if you kind of did your own religion. They didn't really care about that. But you needed to pay taxes to Caesar, and you did not mess up their economy. And over one-third of Rome is made up of slaves. That's going to make a big impact to their economy if all those people decide, what are going to be slaves anymore? And so while Paul does in other books condemn abusive masters, and while Peter condemns abusive masters, they're not going to take on slavery right here because they're not really worried about the external circumstance. We talk about that with parents and kids. It's not really concerned if you have a bad parent or a good parent, but this is how you have a relationship with your parent. So Paul's not really worried about whether you are a slave or a bondservant. You are still going to act um, in a Christ-like manner. You are still going to act with obedience. What's a bondservant anyway? Let's look at the Greek right here. And the reason I used bondservant, that's the ESV translation. The other translations that you might have, NIV, HCSB, all those good ones, they have slave. The word is doulos. In the Greek, um, and doulos can have plenty of meanings. It can have a lot of meanings. Um, for example, James, the half-brother of Christ, introduces himself in James 1 as James, a doulos of Christ. He does not call himself the brother of Christ. He calls himself a servant, a slave, a bondservant. And what's that mean? Now, most likely, when this book was, when this letter was being read out in the uh, church in Ephesus, the audience was right there. They were all sitting there, and it was being read publicly. The whole thing was just, you know, one of the elders stood up and read the whole thing publicly. These bond servants, that means these bond servants were in church with the masters, which means they probably were not the bond servants or the slaves, how we think of slaves. More likely, these were the bond servants that were bond servants because of their debts. So here's how it works. If you, were, if you decide to be a doulos, a bondservant, because you got in major debt with someone, this is how it would work. You would say, okay, like take Josh. I give Josh a whole bunch of money. Josh goes and spends it all on lizards. 
And it turns out the lizard stock's not very high. I mean, the lizard stock, it kind of crashes. He loses all my money. I say, Josh, where's my money? He says, I blew it all on lizards. I said, I knew you would. Uh, so he, he comes and he decides, you know what? Josh says, can I just be a bond servant? Can I just be a doulos to pay off my debt? And I say, all right. So for however long we, d- we agree that it takes him, and let's say I gave him a lot. So it takes like seven years because that's what most doulos relationships were. It took seven years. Um, for seven years, he's going to work for me and Leslie. Um, he's going to come over to our apartment He's actually going to live there. He's going to live in our apartment, our guest room. And we're going to feed him, and we're going to clothe him. But we're not going to pay him because he's working for us. And what he's going to do, can you do laundry? Okay, he's going to do our laundry. Can you do dishes? I don't like doing dishes. Can you do those? Yeah. Okay, okay, you can do some dishes. Can you, what can you cook? Can you cook anything? Because most nights during the school nights, I don't feel like cooking. Can you cook anything? Pop-Tarts? Yeah. Okay, we're going to eat some pop We're going to be eating a lot of Pop-Tarts. Um, and so that's what Josh is going to do. He is going to come, and he is going to um, work in our house for usually around seven years or however long it takes him to pay off those debts. Now, when the seven years is over, he has one of two choices. One, I can just give Josh a little bit of siphon, and I just give it. This is not a, like, lend. I just give him a little bit of money to start off his new life, and he goes, and we just part ways, and we say, okay, that was good. Or what Josh can realize is, hey, man, I'm not good with money. I'm not good when left to my own devices. If, you, if I have some money right now, I'm, I know I'm going to just immediately spend it on lizards. I mean, I, this, is, this is not going to work out well for me. Um, and what he can do is he can ask if he can become a bond servant of the family, a doulos of the family. And what that means is for as long as he wants, even for the rest of his life, if I accept him, he can live as part of the family. He doesn't get paid, but we feed him and we clothe him and he works for us and he keeps that relationship up. Why would someone want to do that? Because they see that the master is so great. They have such a great relationship with their master that they say, this is, what I, this is what I want to do indefinitely. And so this is what we would do. Josh, can you come up here real quick? If, uh, if we want to make this, everyone, this is Josh. Uh, if we want to make this official, so you decide to stay with us, and I said, okay, you can do that. What we would do is we would take Josh right here. We would go pretend this is the door frame of the house, and we would take his ear uh, this part right here, the little fatty part, the earlobe, and we would put up to the door frame, and um, we would get a hammer and nails to, oh, next time. But just pretend, <laughs> just pretend that I had a hammer and nails, and we would take his earlobe and put it up to the door frame, and I would nail his earlobe to the door frame. Then I would take the nail out, and that would be the ceremony. That's the blood ceremony that happens. And so what Josh does after that, I mean, what does that leave right there? You put a nail in his ear. It leaves a hole, and eventually it's going to leave just a scar, right? And so what's going to happen is as Josh goes out, you know, he's going out to the market to buy stuff for the family. Um, He's going out to society, you know, he's going to get my dry cleaning. He's going to do all that. People are going to see this scar on his ear, and they're going to say, wow, he must have a great, great master. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Um, He must, yeah, yeah, thank you, Josh. Uh, He must have, wow, his master must be great if he has chosen to live his life indefinitely here, because he served his time, because you don't get that until after you serve your time. He served his time. He paid off his debt, but he still chose to live for that master. That master must be worth serving. There's a lot of gospel implications to that. Um, We have a master worth serving. We ourselves are bond servants. You can use the word slaves if you want, because we were a slave to sin. Now we're a slave to Christ. But what if you don't have a master worth serving? What if you don't? What if you're still paying off your debts and your master is horrible? 
mistreats you. I mean, as soon as you pay off your debts, you're gone. But you have to pay off your debts. What are, what are you doing, Master? We're serving. Well, the Bible talks about that. First Peter two, I think First Peter two eighteen says, "Hey, masters, if you treat your servants well, you will be rewarded in kingdom. Masters who don't treat your servants well, you will be punished." But slaves, whether you got a master worth serving or not, that's not really the point. The point is that you serve your master the same way you serve your perfect master. A master that has no flaws, that will not mistreat you, that is always going to treat you well. That is how you serve them. The Bible does not condone abuse. That's worth being said right now. If you're in an abusive marriage, if you're in an abusive relationship with your parents, if you're in an abusive workforce, get out of that. The Bible does not condone abuse. The Bible actually condemns abuse. But, hey, if you're at this point in your job and you want to be at this point in your job, the Bible, you know, you just want to raise your social standard, the Bible's not really meant for that. It's, it's about your gospel standard. It's about your heart standard to Christ. That is what it's focused on. And the final person is masters. It says this, Masters, do the same to them. What's that same? Obey. Kind of weird that it tells masters to obey their bondservants as the bondservants are obeying them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. He doesn't care if you're Jew, if you're Greek, if you're poor, if you're rich, because that is not what the gospel is based out of. And just because you believe in Christ, none of that stuff's going to change. Some of it might but none of it's guaranteed. Um, I hope this doesn't offend anyone, but I like to preach an anti-prosperity gospel. <laughs> um, your life's actually going to be harder <laughs> once you're a believer, and that's okay. Paul says, Paul says it's going to happen that way. And that's okay because our life is not based on the good or bad things that happen to us while we're on earth. Our life is based on our relationship with the Father because one day we will know a kingdom that knows no abuse, that knows no pain, that knows no hurt, that knows no absent fathers, that knows no absent parents, that knows no abuse, we will be part of that kingdom. That is what our hope's based in. So for masters, do the same. Obey because your worth is not based on the money you have, the land you have, the people who are serving you. It's all based on your servitude to Christ. That is the gospel. So these masters that have the money, these masters who have people working for them, Paul says, you know, that, that's great, cool, you know, fine. But just remember, you are not the master of your universe. The master of your universe is Christ. And if you are saying that you are spirit-filled, then you should be living different than every other master. Where other masters might say, well, I can abuse my bondservants because I'm their master. Paul says, no, 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 no. You don't do that. You do not abuse your bondservants because Christ is not abusing you and he is your master. And bondservants, you obey your master. And you don't say, oh, well, my master's bad, so I'm going to you know, kind of be a little derisive or, or insubordinate. I'm not going to obey them. No, 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 no. You still obey your masters, whether good or bad, because your heavenly master is good all the time. And parents, whether your kids stink or not, you are going to intentionally spend time parenting them because you stink and the Lord still intentionally spend time parenting you. And kids... Whether your parents stink or not, you're still going to obey and honor them because you have a heavenly father that is never going to stink and that is always going to be worth obeying and honoring.
Once again, this passage, this chapter, along with chapters 5 and 4, they do not support a do-don't theology. Our identity should instead be so radically changed by the gospel that we cannot help but to treat others differently. Our church's identity is not based on how good of spouses we can become, how good of parents we can be, how good of children we can be, how good of employees or employees we can be. That's not what makes a healthy church. What makes a healthy church is hearts radically changed. That's why the New Testament is different than the Old. That's why Jesus had to come to fulfill the law, because it is not about the external anymore. It's about the internal. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, take care of that first. Then worry about being a good spouse. I mean, why do we have bad fathers? Why do we have bad spouses? Why do we have bad employers and employees? It's because of sin. It's a sin issue. If we want to combat a sin issue, I don't get up, I don't get up here at the pulpit um, in front of you guys, and I don't talk about all these social changes we need to make. I talk about the heart changes we need to make. And it's going to sound repetitive, and I'm going to keep doing it every time I preach, because that is the core of the issue. And I think it would be an abuse of my position or abuse of me having this opportunity to speak to you if I just came up here and talked about social issues or I just you know, spent the whole sermon talking about all these different things. And although those issues are great, and although as a private citizen, I'm going to interact with those issues. I'm going to interact with, with racism um, or gender issues or um, po- political issues or Supreme Court nominations. I'm going to deal with those issues privately. But here as a church, our number one mission is the gospel. And don't get the social gospel confused with the gospel of Christ. Yeah, that's, that's important, those social issues. They're important. But our number one mission is to change hearts. And the only way we're going to change hearts is by reflecting a changed heart. The only way we're going to change hearts is by reflecting a changed heart. So what do we learn about God from this? Final two questions. What do we learn about God? Uh, we learn that God desires the church's identity to be gospel-centered relationships for the sake of his glory. That's what we learn about God. That is what God desires of Project Re3. Now, what do we learn about us, about this, from this information about God and from the context? No matter the circumstances of life we live in, if we are filled with the Spirit, we are to serve others as Christ served us. I'll give you this final note. You remember when Christ washed the disciples' feet before he went and died, all that good stuff? Um, do you guys know that, that feet washing stuff, they wouldn't even, like, feet were so nasty in those days, they wouldn't even have the Jewish servants do that. The Jewish people would have the Gentile servants do that. I mean, they wouldn't even let their Jewish slaves do that um, because it was just, it was such a nasty, nasty thing. And so the leader of these disciples, the master of the universe himself, served his disciples because he was showing them this is what the gospel is, humbling yourself, serving others, because that's what Christ was wanting to do for you. As a church, that is our goal, to find ways that we can serve others, no matter our circumstance, no matter the, our relationship. How are we reflecting Christ? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this time together. Lord, thank you for giving us a gospel that shows us how we are to obey. Thank you for Ephesians as a book, Lord. Um, Lord, let us just wade in your words and let us just mull um, over, over what, has been, what, what Paul is saying here. Lord, let us read through this book over and over and over again till we we start to get it. Lord, you are so good to give us your word. You show us how the Spirit fills us, and then you show us how that should affect our lives. 
Don't let us leave this church today saying, okay, well, I'm a believer. How do I act like one? Lord, you just spent three chapters telling us. Lord, let us sit in that. Let that be heavy on our hearts in every relationship we have. As employees, as employers, as children, as parents, as spouses, no matter what, Lord, let us do that. And if we need to pray for that strength, Lord, let us pray for that strength. If we need to pray for that grace, let's pray for that grace. If we need to pray for that patience, let's pray for that patience. Because you have been strong when we are weak. You have given grace when we are sinful. And you have been patient when we continually fail. Lord, we thank you for who you are and what your message is. Let us take that as our identity. In your name I pray. Amen. All right. Um, youth today, 430. I think it's just a normal youth today. Big time. That's big for us. We've been doing a bunch of crazy stuff recently. The cutathon is today at that place I said. <laughs> at a time I wasn't given. <laughs> and the uh, Fall Fest is next week. And also, a special guest speaker next week, so come for that. And go out, be blessed, change the world for Christ.